got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And our guest on this episode is comedian Ron Placone. Our media infrastructure would be illegal in a lot of other countries. It wouldn't be legal. The way we have Mm -hmm. oil and gas companies and weapons manufacturers advertise on cable news. Why do you think they do that? They're not trying to get the word out. None of us are in the market for a new tank anytime soon. But first, if you like what you've been hearing on What the Folk and want to show us your love, we are not even going to ask you for money yet. All we will ask you for is your five-star ratings and your reviews that tell us all the things that you wish you could tell us while we were talking to you. And, uh, you know, we just really appreciate anybody's ears over here. So thank you so much for being here, and uh, we love you back. Now here to get things started off is Ron Placone's version of the Phil Oaks masterpiece, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. He's the guy who, uh, he described the American liberal, someone who is 10% to the left during the best of times, 10% to the right when it affects them personally. And uh, we're seeing the remake of that today, you know, blue no matter who will protect my tax brackets, so... (laughs) So if you know this one, sing along. We revamped it a little bit. I cried when they shot Michael Brown. A chill ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Timmy Rice. Was like I lost a child of mine. But Colin Kaepernick's just disrespectful And most of the cops are just fine So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal You guys get it My president's Barack Obama The entire country adored He brought us our hope and our change And 30 million left uninsured (laughs) And I don't care about fracking or drone strikes Cause that ain't gonna happen next door So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Now I vote for the Democratic Party Cause they have the better deal And I have lots of love for the Clintons Always have and I always will And we need to believe all women Unless it's about Biden or Bill So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. 
Tom Placone is a comedian. He appears regularly on The Jimmy Dore Show and has been seen on Crosstalk, TMZ, Free Speech TV, The Young Turks, Redacted Tonight, and more. His debut album, Agnostic Holiday, is on SiriusXM. He hosts the YouTube show podcast, Get Your News On with Ron. That's quite an impressive list of credentials, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm a, a longtime listener, first-time caller, so thanks uh, for having me. Yay. <laughs> you warm our hearts, our dark, cynical, <laughs> anarchist hearts. <laughs> so how is your apocalypse going? It's going okay. I mean, it's, um, you know, I try to... I feel like we're not even at a time where it's one day at a time. I feel like we're just kind of one hour at a time, yeah. you know? And, and so I, I just, I just try to live my life that way. Like, it's like, okay, I'm going to just do what I can do, not dwell on all the stuff I can't do. And I'm going to try to uh, just enjoy the scenery to the best of my ability in my, uh, you know, the exciting jog I get to take each day and uh, enjoy the quality time with the cat. And uh, that that's pretty much that's pretty much where I'm at. Yes. I feel like cats do demand quality time, you know. Well, my cat is the biggest winner in this quarantine. I mean, <laughs> my, my cat has won so much like because between my wife and myself, she gets playtime literally whenever she wants. Like between the two of us, she never doesn't get what she wants. And so she's been I mean, she has gotten so much playtime. She's lost a little bit of weight. She can make jumps that she hasn't been able to make in years. She's been lifting weights. She has a prison tattoo. She is crushing it. I asked her where that she was. got it. She was like, too many questions. I was like, all right, all right. So so my cat, my cat is winning in this quarantine. <laughs> well, and we all know cat time isn't um, isn't the same as like regular people time anyway. Like cats are only taking it minute by minute always anyway. So you're good. Yeah. Right. I feel like there's something we can learn from them. I mean, these days it's like, and I, 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 are you guys cat people too? Are y'all cat people? Yeah, I have two cats. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. You told me that. Yeah. So, I mean, Lucy always does this thing and my cat's name is Lucy. She always does this thing where she'll, um, she'll want to cuddle like as soon as I'm ready to go out somewhere, which is typically to just, you know, go get groceries or go for a walk or like I go to my farmer's market once a week. That's like the big exciting excursion for me. You know, we're all, we're all living like, uh, we're all living like, like it's like the olden days. Like I'm, I'm taking a wagon into town to get some crops, you know, but like, <laughs> but, but, um, but as soon as I want to go out, she'll just want to cuddle. And, and these days, you know, because everything is just so remote, usually if that's the case, I'm just like, all right, cool. Whenever you get tired of me, I'll just go out after that. And she's like, great. I know. It's about time you just live by my schedule. Why did it take you this long? Like, I, it's a long story, too much to explain. But we used to have a world outside of this apartment. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you about it some other time. <laughs> I don't know how our cats are going to adjust when things, I mean, things aren't going to get back to normal, but you know, something resembling normal when we're not at home all day, because they are very similarly, they basically decide what we are doing at every moment of every day. So. I know, right? I've thought about that too, or I wonder if she's going to be a little sad for a while, which which I, I hope isn't the case, but, but I could imagine it being so, where it's like, oh, he's he's moving around a lot and, and, uh, both humans do that. I don't like it. So, <laughs> or she might be happy to have a little more of like her time, 
Like, yeah, they were infringing on lounging hour. I don't know what they think they were doing, but they weren't supposed to be here. (laughs) You know what that, so this makes me think of the conversation I was having with my upstairs neighbor the other day, which is about how um, people were very, like as a culture, very specious. And uh, we really think that humans are like the highest form of evolution and we're the top and we're the best. And it's like, you know, I feel like cats kind of, and she was specifically talking about her cat. She was like, Mike, I, I think this this cat is actually has figured it out way better than <laughs> any human. <laughs> and most cats in general. And I just I just admire any species that all they have to do is be fluffy and not always violent. Totally. And we take care of them. Yeah, I mean, and and I love dogs too, don't get me wrong. Like I'm a big animal person, but but yeah, cats, uh, there's a particular thing about them that, that I think is very special. And, and yeah, maybe they are like the most evolved because look, they domesticated themselves and they realized like, yeah, I don't have to fetch something or let you rub my belly whenever you feel like it. You can pet me the way I want to be pet and you're going to keep me around no matter what. So deal with it. So like, yeah. They've even cats learned to, to meow, didn't... Oh, sorry, I don't mean oh, to sorry. I was, I was saying they've even managed to be worshipped in some cultures, so, you know. Right? <laughs> they figured something well, I out. Read that, or I heard that they don't meow to each other. They only meow to people to get what they want because they realize that we're verbal and we need that. So they're like, look, all right, we know what we need to do here. <laughs> Develop, <laughs> learn a new skill, cats, as a, as a species, Get the people to do what you want. I like. I've never seen a cat meow at another cat. I've seen a cat hiss. Yeah. I've never. I don't know. I mean, I think they they've got it dialed. We could learn a lot. We need to be fluffier. <laughs> My takeaway. Yes. Well, apparently, I would have to find this study to back up what I'm about to say here, but um. There was some study that basically cats think we're big, dumb, hairless kittens that can't feed ourselves. So that's why they always want to bring us gifts of like, I don't know. We live out more in the country. So we get like snakes and lizards and mice and all kinds of things brought in the house if we let one of the cats out. So they're trying to feed us. And they they like check your food for you. Like when they, when they put their face in their food, in your food, I mean, some, if it's something that they like, yeah, they might be trying to eat it, but more often than not, they're checking it for you to make sure it's safe. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably true because they don't know, they don't have confidence in our ability to not just poison ourselves at any given meal. So, (laughs) so yeah, they might think like, like they really need our help. They really need our help. Good thing we're here. Yeah, right. <laughs> with good reason. Awesome. Well, switching gears from cats. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about you cats know. all day. Um, <laughs> we can we can metaphor this as long as you need to. We get a bad metaphors on this podcast. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear more about kind of your journey into comedy and politics and you know, how you've been combining the two in your career and just kind of your story and what motivates you. Sure. Um, so I was into politics before I was doing comedy. Um, I basically just played in punk bands in high school and didn't really care about anything other than playing in a band and skateboarding and hoping girls liked me. And then I went away to college 
And uh, that was around the time that Iraq was really in full swing. And my friends were getting sent over there. And I, I didn't know why. I, I, I didn't understand why that war was going on. And so I, I started to look into things a little more critically. And I started to read uh, different news sources that were available. And uh, I started to read writers like Noam Chomsky and stuff like that. And, and so freshman year of college, I changed a lot. Um, and I kind of just was off to the races after that. I became a pretty big lefty and um, was really interested in um, media policy and media structure because it was really intriguing. Uh, I guess intriguing is one way to put it. It, it was really disturbing to me <laughs> is maybe a better way to put it, how uh, our corporate media in the United States helped the Bush administration lie us into war. You know, and, and I think a lot of people, they have a particular event or series of events that really jolts them awake. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for, I, I'm sure for a lot of, especially the younger generation, it was when Donald Trump became president in 2016. You know, for me, it was when I was a freshman in college and Iraq was going on. And I really, you know, started asking a lot of questions and started digging deeper to find those answers. Um, and so I was always really into politics. And then I got into non-commercial broadcasting and stuff like that. And then when I was about to graduate college, I was kind of thinking, okay, what am I going to do next? And I kind of wanted to get into like radio or something like that. And I found this article online that I'm pretty sure was from the 1980s, but I didn't realize it at the time. And I I just kind of found it from some random, you know, Google search. And it said, a good way to get into talk radio is to be a stand-up first. And I kind of thought, well, gee, I don't really, I don't really know much about stand-up comedy. I've watched a little bit of it. Um, But I like uh, the idea of it and I've played in bands before and I did theater in high school. So I guess being on stage is okay for me. So uh, I'm going to do this. And so I just did it. My first set was very not ideal. My first set was in front of a sold out audience. Uh, I mean, most people's like their first sets at like an open mic or something like that. (laughs) My, my first set was in front of a sold out audience because there was this like, I went to I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, um, which there is a comedy club there now, but at the time there wasn't. So there was this one venue that did comedy twice a week that those are you know usually referred to as one nighters, and they would bring in acts from all over the country, and they would just have like a comedy night, and it was booked through this agency. So I got the information for this agency, and I basically told the guy that I was a stand-up, even though I, I'd never done it before. I, I was like, yeah, I'm a stand-up. <laughs> and I, I, he didn't double check me. I mean, I mean, this was before every comic had a website, I guess. Yeah. And uh, so he gave me what's called a guest spot where you go and you do like four minutes on a show. So, you know, the MC brought me up and I did four minutes and had no idea what I was doing and just bombed royally. And, uh, my girlfriend at the time, it was a new girlfriend. Her parents were in the audience. I had never met them before. So, um, and, uh, I was really nervous. So I got hammered before I went on stage. I mean, every single thing that 
could have gone wrong, I, I guess kind of did. I mean, well, no, the, the fire sprinklers didn't go off. Although, had they, that would have made my set better. So, um, yeah, it was pretty terrible. And I knew it went really bad. Like, I was like, that was really, really bad. But I was so clueless to how it all worked. I didn't realize that, you know, being a comedian was a job somebody could have. Like, I just didn't know that. I just figured every comedian either had a radio show or was an actor or did something else, which is partially true. But, you know, you can make a living on the road as a stand-up, which I ended up doing for many years. But that night, I didn't know anything. And so the guy who went on after me who is, you know, who was a professional comedian, who ironically enough, I'm still friends with to this day. And I don't know if he remembers me from that moment because we met in the future. Um, I have no idea if he remembers that night. And I don't think I'll ever have the courage to actually ask him when I see him around in LA now, but, um, or when I did, you don't see anyone around anymore, (laughs) but, but, but hopefully there will be a future time where I will see him around again. But, um, he went up after me and he did really well. And I didn't understand that he was a comedian. I thought he was just like a dude or like a grad student or something. (laughs) I didn't understand. So he gets off stage and I'm just like, Hey, I'm new. Do you have any advice for me? And he was trying to be like polite, but also kind of make it clear that I had no idea what I was doing. So he literally said, "I I think it'd be good if you wrote jokes, you should write jokes that have a punchline. And, and so I actually wrote that down. I was just like, write jokes. And, and then, and then um, I said, oh, so what do you study? And he goes, what? And I was like, I was like, what, are, are you a grad student here? And he goes, no. And I said, well, what do you do? And he goes, you just saw it. I'm a comedian. And I'm like, oh, you do this for a job? And he goes, yeah, dude, how did you get booked tonight? And, and so, yeah, and I I kind of realized Ooh. that uh, this is a thing and I had no clue what I was doing. But after that experience that night, I wasn't discouraged. I started writing jokes and I tried again and again and again and again and again and again. So, you know, and, and then I lived in Seattle for a little while. Um, I lived in Pittsburgh for a hot minute because uh, that's where I'm from originally, and I went to grad school there. Mm-hmm. But I was still doing comedy, um, you know, while all that was going on simultaneously. Uh, then I lived in Nashville for a while, and now I live in L.A. Nice. A fellow hopper arounder. <laughs> I, I like to be nomadic. I mean, I, I like to, yeah, I, I like to travel around. I mean, I, there were always, like, circumstances that put me in all those different places, but but I was glad it happened nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found that, like, I know, have you found that living and like sort of being from all those different places at certain times has um, informed your, uh, your act and like changed your act over the years? I, I know like when I lived in Georgia, I, um, growing up, I grew up in upstate New York was stationed in Georgia for a while and like just living there, I was like, um, very, my eyes were very opened to a lot of, you know, ways that perceptions had been, uh, skewed. (laughs) You know, what's you know, what's funny. And, and, uh, but I've always noticed not all the time, but a lot of the time, whenever somebody's lived around a lot, 
they're from the Rust Belt, like you and I both are. Yeah. Like, like that's like kind of common where it's like, oh, yeah. you've lived in quite a few different places. Yeah. Where are you from originally? Buffalo, yeah. Pittsburgh, upstate <laughs> <Somewhere>. New York. <laughs> you hear that a lot. And, and I think it's like those kind of places you're just like, okay, but what else is out there? And, right. and you kind of want, you, you really want to like just go around and see stuff. Um, but I guess it did to an extent. I mean, I, I don't really, I was never one of those people that like, oh, if I'm in the, South, I have to do a different act than if I'm in the Midwest or whatever else. I, I just always was kind of like, I'm going to do what I do and I hope people like it. I mean, I would adapt depending on the situation. Like, obviously, if I'm doing a college, it's going to be a little bit different than if I'm doing, you know, like just a regular show mm-hmm. or something like that. Cause some of the stuff I like to talk about, they might not be able to relate to as much. If I'm at a club and I kind of want to talk about getting married recently and stuff like that, um, I might not do that as much if I'm doing a college because they probably can't relate to, you know, what it's like to be married and stuff like that. They can relate to relationship stuff to an extent. So I'll I'll kind of like adapt it some, but I don't really Mm -hmm. change like what I do or what I say or anything like that. I just kind of you know, I just kind of throw it out there and hope people connect with it. But, um, but you know, being on the road for years, I, I think was a good thing for me because it, it kind of did, um, you know, I think it kind of did help frame my perspective on, on just the big, crazy experiment that is the United States, um, mm-hmm. an experiment that is very, very, very tragically flawed. But but also through those flaws does have a lot of beauty and, and does have a lot of potential for a hopefully better tomorrow at some point in time. Um, so, you know, I think it's allowed me to um, it's allowed me to be kind of real about what's going on and how messed up this corporation with state lines really is, because that's what it is. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I think calling it a country is too generous at this point. It's a corporation with state lines. But yeah. But also there's so many, um, you know, amazing pockets and amazing people in every nook and cranny. And, you know, that kind of thing kind of helps, kind of gives you the ability to hold out a little bit of hope that as a populace, we can do better than this and we will. So, yeah, I mean, I often have to reflect that, like, this place wouldn't make me so mad if I didn't love it so much and think that we deserve better. (laughs) so deeply because of the people I know and the people I work with and the people I see doing work out there. Well, I think that, you know, and and of course there's like a, there's a yin and a yang to this. Like there's a pro and a con, but, but I think that the only reason we're not infinitely worse off is because of people giving a shit about their neighbors. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I think when you think about how our government has completely abandoned us more or less. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's not even like it's people used to say at the beginning of this, other countries are laughing at us. It's beyond that. Now they're not laughing at us. They're looking on with horror. They're looking on like, mm-hmm. like what the fuck are you doing? Like, that's what they're, they're like, what is your leadership? What, what the hell? Like, like they're scared for us at this point. And we're just like, yeah, it really is this bad. We've been trying to do something. You guys have to lead on climate change, by the way. You really do. Because we're, we're not, we are not doing that here. We, you're going to have to drag us along kicking and screaming. I hate to break it to you. So, 
they're looking on in horror, but the only reason we're not even worse off is because of people looking out for each other um, to an extent. And, and so I, I think that there's a little bit of, um, you know, there's a little sliver of hope there where it's like, you know, we are kind of holding ourselves together and we're all we have at the end of the day. So now, you know, the mask has been completely ripped off and we know that to be the case. So um, how are we going to react is, uh, you know, is the big question. Yeah, it's, I think the, we're seeing it, you know, in real time right now, we're seeing how different, like different people are reacting to this situation in different ways, but I feel like we're seeing the best or worst come out of everyone. And uh, like, if you tend toward being, being a shitty person, then like this is bringing the the shitty person extra out of you, you know. And if you I tend, like that. if you tend toward being decent, then you're 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 upping your decency. As far as like my observations have gone, and like I think like worse. It's interesting. Like it's it, it's reminded me a lot of deployment. Um, this this whole situation where we're all kind of walking around with like at least mid to mid level tension all the time like kind of afraid for our lives because of not only external threats but also like uh, leadership that is just like incompetent and egotistical assholes and like that was being in the Iraq war <laughs> and that's being in the pandemic and it's like run by the same people woo mm-hmm. <laughs> and um it's so interesting to think about like like I saw the same thing happen when we were deployed like the longer it went on like the more people's true selves emerged <laughs> because you just can't you don't have any more energy for your mask after a while you're just exhausted and you're just trying to keep putting one foot in front of the other it's like I feel some solidarity at this point <laughs> like when you come home from a war you're like nobody knows what this is like but now I'm like no, people, people are starting to get it. And it sucks that this is what's happening. But at the same time, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting to watch it all unfold. It really is. And you're absolutely right. It's not like it's all, um, it's definitely not all positive. I mean, there's definitely been some people out there and we've all, you know, experienced this in our day to day where they're just like, well, this is terrible. And this pandemic's going on. Time to turn my shithead up to 11. Mm-hmm. Time to do that. But, but you know, other people are, are kind of, you know, going out of their way to just be a little more. I mean, hey, I've, I've said hello to people with a little more frequency than I have in the past, you know, like, because especially like a place like L.A. where it's not necessarily known for its friendliness. But, mm-hmm. but I feel like um, I, I feel like in general, everybody is making a little bit of an extra effort to just sort of be like, hey we're in each other's corners the best we can be. And that's all, if you can do nothing else, it's like that's yeah. all you can do right now is at least try to show some solidarity with people from behind a mask, you know? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I have been smiling more and then I have to remind myself, they can't see that. You have a mask on. You have a mask, sunglasses, and a hat on. They have no <laughs> idea what your face is doing. So wave. Yeah. 
<laughs> Honey, I Jazz have... fingers. Jazz so fingers. <laughs> I had almost like a whole conversation with another woman when we were waiting to check out at Safeway because the woman in front of us was being very demanding and like kind of rude to the cashier. And we were just kind of looking at each other. And it was like we had this whole conversation with our eyes, just like, ugh, you know, like, but somehow we managed to communicate. I think we were like, yeah, this is. That's such an interesting, like, okay, that's an interesting development. We're all learning how to communicate better with our eyes and like more intentionally. Like, what if one of the outcomes of this pandemic means that we all develop like a better, like better uh, nonverbal communication skills with one another and learn to read each other's energy? Like, I can't tell that you're smiling under your mask, but like the corners of your eyes look like you might be smiling. And I've noticed that because it's the only part of you I can see. Hey. Couldn't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm for it. Yeah. I demand psychic skills by the end of this. <laughs> We're going to have ESP. Um, or at least ESPN. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, the work with you do, the work you do is get your news on with Ron. I'm so curious, having to engage with the news like that, how you kind of keep keep yourself sane but also if sort of doing that project is to help keep you sane in a way to engage with some of these really frustrating topics yeah it's it's definitely both I mean there there are times where yeah I I just have to like take a break for a little bit and stuff like that I mean I mean usually at the end of the year I take a little break and and this year is no different. Um, and I'm coming back a little bit later than I typically do. Like I'm not, I'm not going back again until, um, next week, which will be January 11th. Um, and the reason for that is partially because on a given year, you know, I usually tour a good bit. So I usually have these sort of natural breaks kind of built in because it's like, Hey, the show's going to go on a break because I'm going on the road for, you know, two weeks or whatever. Um, this year that was not the case from March onward. So, um, so I kind of like didn't get a break at all. Like, cause like doing the show was one of the only things I could do. So I I just kept doing it, which was great. But, uh, but yeah, at the end of the year, I was like, ah, I'm going to take a little break from this and come back January 11th. But it is really, really fun to do when you just do a live stream and you kind of realize that you're not as alone as you think you are, that there's other people who kind of see the world the way you do and and you make them laugh about it and you make them feel a little bit better about it. And they like a guy who geeks out about punk rock and talks to his cat and really cares about digital rights because a lot of people don't report on that stuff or if they do, they get it wrong because they listen to like some talking point from an elected official who doesn't understand what they're voting on. So they like listening to you tell them about it because you give a shit and, you know, you break it down or whatever. So, so for me, like that's been awesome. And, and it's cool that there are people who, who give a shit because, you know, that show kind of lives or dies by whether or not there are people out there who care. And, um, cause if I was just talking to myself, I, I wouldn't be able to continue it. Even if I wanted to, I just wouldn't be able to. So, you know, that's really cool. Like, like it's, um, you know, like at the end of the year, even though 2020 was a crazy year, I mean, I, I, I did this end of year send off where I'm like, thank you guys so much. Cause you're letting me know that this shows matters to you and it's important. 
and we're still going and we're still growing and that's freaking awesome. And, you know, this coming year, my editor, Joe, is going to be able to be involved more. And that's because of everybody, um, you know, just, um, you know, stepping up and, and being a patron when they're able to. And, you know, not everybody's able to, which of course I understand, but folks that, you know, they email me and they tell me, hey, Ron, I showed up at my city hall and I, I petitioned for municipal broadband and it was because I saw a video of you doing it or, hey, Ron, like, you know, I, I met with my local DSA chapter. They're putting municipal broadband on their agenda now because I, I told them about, uh, you know, about you talking about it and showed them a video clip and, you know, stuff like that is just really, really freaking cool. And then when people send me their books and their records and stuff like that's just, um, so, so that, so yeah, the show really, uh, is therapy for me in many ways, but yeah, at the same time, sometimes I need to take a step away from it and unplug for a bit. Yeah. So that's cool. I think just the way, you know, everyone is kind of creating media right now, especially on the left, it does kind of pull you into this community of people. Um, because your story in some ways resonated a lot with mine. Like I went to college, my freshman year was 2000. So 9-11 happened in my sophomore year and then the Iraq war started the year after. And I just remember, especially mm-hmm. once I got away from UVM and was still doing anti-war work. So I went to the University of Vermont. So like, you know, very <laughs> stereotypical Friedrich Chomsky Marxist professor type school, just feeling really alone in a lot of ways. Um, so I just, there is something that's really amazing right now about the amount of leftist voices being heard and the amount of opportunities we have to connect with each other, even if we're not always great at talking about points of tension, um, at yeah. least not on Twitter. <laughs> so, sure. But yeah. Um, yeah, so that's really cool. It's uh, University of Vermont. That's right in Burlington, right? Yeah, we're in Burlington. That's such, such a cool town. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got to see a little uh, representative from our state named Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I've heard of him. I've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> He's done some interesting stuff, that guy. Yeah, it was so funny when he became popular. I was like, or when he announced that he was running for president, I was like, oh, cool. Me and like 10 people will vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he became so like personally for me, that was one of the more validating experiences, I think. Even though it was kind of heartbreak two times in a row, it was still like seeing how many people resonated with Bernie was, that was a big deal. That meant a lot to me. Oh, I think it's a huge deal. And yeah, I, I totally agree with that assessment that it was heartbreak two times. It it definitely was and, and still is. But because he was just in the right place at the right time, and also to his credit, he didn't want to be there. He wanted someone else to do it. He was like, someone else do it. I'm, I'm, I'm an old socialist, someone else, but no one else would. So he's like, well, I guess it's going to be me. And what he did was he just, it's like he just had a big ass flashlight and he just turned it on and he was like, hey, you lefty, you know how you think you're alone? You're not. Look at all these people. You're not as alone as you thought you were. And, and that's what Bernie did. And, and it was a huge, huge thing that, that I really hold out hope will lead to something very, very positive because he did just make it clear to so many of us that we're not alone. We're not as alone as we thought we were. I, I think if you're on the left in the United States, which is very, very broad because we are an extremely conservative country. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, or, or as far as leadership is concerned, not necessarily amidst the people, but as far as leadership is concerned, we are an extremely, extremely conservative country. And I think not a lot of people realize this. I mean, I, I remember um, 
you know, back when live performance was still a thing, I kind of miss it. I don't know if you can tell, but like, but back when that, and I'm sure you do too, Emily. Yeah. Like, sure. My poor heart. I know. Uh, are you, are, do you do the Zoom thing? I, I know some I, musicians do the Zoom thing. I know some sometimes. don't. Sometimes. I used to more. I did a lot in the beginning of the, of it all. And then I kind of got burnt on it because I would close the screen and it would, I'd be in an empty room and it was depressing and it was, it was, you know, but I'm I'm kind of dabbling back again. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, miss it. It's yeah. not the same, but it's so much better than nothing. When when I hear people like when people are like, and I can't really speak to the musician world as much as the comedian world, but it's like there's some comics who are just like, I'm not gonna do a Zoom show. It's not the craft. It's I'm not doing. And I just said, hey, you know how 20 years ago there were comedians that said they'll never get on social media or anything like that? Do you remember who those people were? No, you don't. Nobody else does either. There's a reason for that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not suggesting it's going to be a replacement for live performance. That would be terrible. But at the current moment, it is infinitely better than nothing at all. And it's the best we got. So, but, um, where was I going with that? Oh yeah. Um, right before I left for Australia, um, I was talking to a family friend. This goes into like how conservative the United States really is and how I, I think a lot of people just don't even realize it. And she goes, uh, Oh, you're going to Australia. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, you think it'll go okay over there? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she goes, well, you know, they're a little conservative in Australia. And I just go, I was like, what country do you think we live in? Like, like, where do you think you are right now? Like, are you, are you asking me, do you think I exclusively perform in Denmark? Like, what do you think <laughs> happens here? Like, like, are you, if you're asking me, how do I think I'll go in a conser- in a country more conservative than the United States? I don't know because Yemen hasn't called to book me yet, but if that ever happens, I'll let you know. So, you know, I I think a lot of people don't realize just how conservative the United States is. So, you know, if you're on the left, you're so used to being homeless. You don't really have any anyone with power that speaks for you um, that none of us could ever imagine it otherwise. And then Bernie Sanders came along and was like, actually, we're not so alone. It turns out we're, we're even less alone than I thought. So man, what do we do now? And I think generally speaking, and I include myself in this, a lot of us are kind of like, we don't know what to do now because we've never been in this situation before. We are used mm-hmm. to have feeling like we have zero allies and turns out that's not the case. I don't know what we do now, but we got to do something. Yeah. Besides fight on Twitter. <laughs> besides fight on Twitter. Besides fight on Twitter. <laughs> but isn't fighting on Twitter just the most productive and constructive thing we can all do based on the fact that there are so many people doing it? <laughs> it's praxis. <laughs> the, the interesting. Uh, so, yes, I totally agree with you about uh, with both of you about how the uh, the flashlight got turned on. Um, I think that. Another thing that's been really um, important that's come out of uh, the whole Bernie Sanders campaigns, plural, all both of them, have been um, he helped amplify the voices of other people who were calling out like specifically what these issues were, namely like uh, Medicare for all and um, 
like specifically that, like that wasn't even a phrase that anybody that I ever heard ever, you know, before his campaign. Um, and now it's like more people are talking about it than not um, across both sides of the, you know, equally conservative divide. <laughs> and, um, and that's, you know, I think we don't, we don't take enough stock regularly enough of how quickly our conversations have evolved in the last several years. Like we would never be talking about intersectional justice in, you know, the, the quasi mainstream, or we wouldn't be talking about a green new deal. We wouldn't be talking about student loan debt forgiveness or abolishing the police. Like all of these, all of these ideas that we're just talking about now, like we didn't talk about them six years ago, seven years ago. I remember getting laughed at for using the word capitalism in conversations not too long ago. Like I remember, you know, it hasn't been that long. So just kind of adding what to Emily says, like taking stock, I think is important. So. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I mean, and, and you know, you brought up Medicare for all. I mean, I, I remember, you know, back in 2008 during the primary, I supported Dennis Kucinich over Obama and everybody was like, why? And I'm like, look, he talks really nice and he makes great speeches. And if he ends up being the guy in the general, I'm, you know, I'm going to vote for him over whoever the Republicans have. But you know, he's not for single payer health care and, and Dennis Kucinich is and that's what we need. So and uh, people would be like, what's single payer health care? You know, so. So, yeah, we've, we've definitely, you know, come pretty far. And, and that is that is definitely a good thing. Speaking of single payer, I saw, yeah, you kind of made a tweet today I saw about the there's a group in Washington trying to get it passed at the state level. Do you think that might be the path forward First, um, you know, those of us who are trying to work on this issue, or what do you think might be the path forward on this issue now? I think that that is likely going to be how it happens here. Now, when I say that, that's not my wish. You know what I mean? Like, like that's not like the preferred way to go. It, w- it would be much better if it was just instantaneously a federal effort. It'd be better that way and for many reasons. But just realistically, when, when you look at how change has been happening the past 10 years or so, especially, I think it's going to happen one state at a time. And that's kind of how it went down in Canada. I mean, one province got it and then eventually it spread. And, you know, one province is equal to like a handful of states, basically. So I think at this point, you know, especially given the direction we've gone politically, as far as who's getting in office. Um, there have been some wins on smaller levels where a lot of candidates who embrace Medicare for all are winning. But, you know, as far as who's going to be able to sign it into law at the end of the day, um, you know, in many ways we've gone backwards. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that it's going to have to be one state at a time. That's not ideal, but I think that's the only way it's going to happen. And even if it doesn't, you got to try it. I mean, this is one of those things you're going up against one of the most powerful lobbies in the world, the insurance industries and big pharma. They're not going to go down gently. So (laughs) you got to try everything to try to get something like this to be a reality. And we are decades behind every other industrialized country. 
So, so yeah, if I had to make a prediction, I think it's going to go down one state at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I think until there's like a critical mass and then it's like, oh, well, enough states have this, that it sort of like we're seeing probably about to happen with cannabis. Um, You know, it's like, well, like half, if, if you can go to half of the states in any given region and, and have cannabis be legal, then why would it make sense to not be able to do that in the other half of them? Um, (laughs) And so hopefully, yeah, the way that like, we'll start seeing these changes in, um, in healthcare will be as local and state governments are forced to take care of people or be, you know, subjected to riots because that's going to happen soon, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I look at it the same. Cannabis is is an excellent example. And then the other thing I look at as far as, you know, the, the industry, um, you know, the insurance industry and what they're going to try to do to stop it all. You know, when you look at something like net neutrality, where we lost that under um, Trump's FCC, and we've been trying to get it back and we've tried a number of different things. One of the most effective ways to avoid a post-net neutrality world, which net neutrality for anyone, you know, for any of your listeners who maybe don't follow those really geeky uh, digital rights issues like I do, uh, like it's basically assures a free and open internet where internet traffic cannot be discriminated against or throttled. the best way we fought back thus far has been getting policy passed at the state level. We have a really good net neutrality bill that was signed into law here in California. And what happens is when you see states, especially bigger states, sign these policies into law, well, all of a sudden you're kneecapping these big cable companies because they can't unroll anti-net neutrality packages in certain states where it's like, oh, if we can't unroll this in California or New York, what can we really do? I see a similar um, situation with something like single payer healthcare. If single payer healthcare happens in California or Washington State or Colorado or New York or uh, you know Oregon, wherever, uh, all of a sudden these insurance companies can't do what they do in all these other states. So they're going to have to figure out a way to either adapt where they get into cosmetics or something like that. Um, which, you know, I mean, I, I'm against for-profit insurance in general, but if they're just going to exist for Botox or something like that, whatever, I can live with that. Uh, as long as people aren't going bankrupt for medical bills, I'm happy. Uh, so they'll either have to adapt in that way and exist on, um, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, additional things that a Medicare for all plans or single payer plan wouldn't cover, or they're just going to straight up go out of business. Either way is fine with me. (laughs) So, so I think, um, I, I kind of see something like that happening. I I think that's the only way it's going to go down. You know, it's like, it really, it's, it's the, the way we, we normalize things as a society. I think it can like go in a dark way and in a, and in a brighter way, you know, just as we, we normalize, you know, the infringement of our, you know, of like surveillance, for example, and like the erosion of our digital rights. Like we also can normalize resisting that erosion as a, like almost as a knee jerk response <clears throat> to be like, okay, well, this is what has 
these are the restricting measures that have been taken. All right, how do we work around this? Like we see the kids doing, you know, with right. the TikToks, <laughs> which is what I call it, even though I really should be on there more <laughs> instead of calling it the TikToks. Um, but the the adaptation that we have where it's like, all right, this isn't an act, this isn't accessible anymore. Let's try this other avenue. And like, I mean, speaking of digital rights, looking at like what's going on with um, Assange right now, like that as far as we're all collectively watching what, what is going to be the precedent set for what we can say and how we can say it and, yeah. uh, and what we can report. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and, you know, we did get a little bit of good news today on, on that front. Um, you know, as of our recording of this, he, he's not going to be extradited, um, which is a good thing. Um, it's not, it's not like, oh man, we're out of the woods, uh, as far as that whole case, because the United States is going to appeal the decision, first of all. And they also, it's not like they ruled and they were like, hey, all of these charges are completely ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous what we're doing here. Uh, this man is free. What they mm -hmm. ruled was, oh, he's, you know, he's a suicide risk. He can't be in a U.S. prison. We're not going to extradite him. Like the only thing they really got on board with was was medical. Um, so, you know, there's still there's still a long way to go, although obviously it's good news today that he's not going to be extradited to the United States. And, you know, as of the recording of this, um, I, I believe a couple of days from now, they're going to be trying to get him out of prison entirely. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is a freedom of, of the press issue of, you know, I, I mean, it's one of the main freedom of the press issues of a generation, really. I mean, when you look at Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, and, and what has gone down. And that's another thing where I think so many people just don't realize, so many people don't realize how brutal Barack Obama was towards whistleblowers and, and how mm -hmm. just, just absolutely disgusting it all was. Um, and so many people don't realize, like when you look at a true press freedom index, I'm not talking about like the bogus ones that the CIA oversees and stuff <laughs> like that. I'm talking about the real ones that is overseen by like elected uh, intellectuals and academics and journalists all around the world. The United States is, I believe, about 50th. Um, in my opinion, they should be even lower. I, I mean, we're not, um, you know, we're not doing very good in that regard. We also have you know, a complete corporate giveaway of our media infrastructure. Our media infrastructure would be illegal in a lot of other countries. It wouldn't be legal. The way we have mm -hmm. oil and gas companies and weapons manufacturers advertise on cable news. Why do you think they do that? They're not trying to get the word out. None of us are in the market for a new tank anytime <laughs> soon. They're trying to get favorable coverage. That's what yeah. they do. And, and so it's just a basic conflict of interest 101. Mm -hmm. And that's why in a lot of other countries, it wouldn't even be legal what we do here. And all these issues are connected because that's why, you know, they're never giving you the real take on something like a Julian Assange. I, right. I mean, they there have been segments on NPR, you know, which is supposed to be among the better of the corporate outlets where, where they literally... I mean, and I, I agree with you. I, I refer to them as I refer to them as nice, polite Republicans. But like, um, 
But I mean, there was a segment on NPR where like Glenn Greenwald literally had to explain to the uh, the interviewer how the law worked. He had to explain because they're like, well, Julian Assange, he had to explain to the guy, no, this is how it works. If you are a journalist and someone gives you information, you are allowed to accept it. You are allowed to publish it. You are even allowed to say, hey, this is dope. Can you get me some more? You're allowed to do all of that. Mm -hmm. What you're not allowed to do, if they hack something in a way that is not legal, you're not allowed to help them. That's why they tortured Chelsea Manning, because they want her to confess that Julian Assange helped her. She hasn't done that, probably because it never happened. (laughs) But they're still torturing her anyway, or they were up until recently, to try to force a confession out of her, because that's the only way this beyond bogus case carries any water whatsoever. And you don't need to be a lawyer to see that. You just need to be paying attention to it. But paying attention to it is quite hard because you have a media that never freaking talks about it. Yeah. It really, like the the burden of work is on the people that care about it to educate people and to even find reliable sources of information. I mean, mm-hmm. for the last couple of years, that's the Assange case has been really important to me. So I've like basically had to sit down one on one with people and I've turned a few people like from skeptics to actually supporting, you know, um, trying to get him free. So that's been a win for me. But yeah, it's like the amount of work you have to do just to get to anything resembling the truth and not just around this issue, but so many issues is really staggering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so many talking points that you hear are just so they're not rooted in anything. They're just they're just fluff. Mm-hmm. And like when you hear people repeat them back to you, and it's not I mean, we're all victims of this, right? I mean, when a lie is repeated often enough, you you anyone will just start to believe it. You know, I, I'm not saying that I'm immune to anything. I'm a human just like everyone else, but like, you know, when you're digging beneath the surface for something like Julian Assange or or, or something like digital rights or or whatever it may be. Um, And you hear people that maybe just haven't yet for whatever reason, and they just repeat something back to you. You're really able to just cut it down really quick Mm -hmm. and have a constructive conversation uh, with that, with that person or group of people, because, you know, all of this stuff, it really is fluff. It just takes someone to just, push it out of the freaking way. And I think, and I think that's what independent media is really trying to do in so many cases. They're just trying to push the fluff out of the way and start to actually address problems. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's, they're also, I mean, independent media and any independent thinker is, is, you know, swimming upstream against a current of like a terrible education system that, intentionally makes it difficult for people to learn how to think critically. And, um, you know, like if, if our public education system is functioning as it's intended to, it's churning out good workers who aren't paying close attention to anything and thinking critically about anything. Um, and it's, I think for me, I've, I've noticed it even like, I'm a pretty critical person, but I even notice when, um, a perspective is raised to me that I haven't maybe considered before really regularly. My first response is, uh-uh, 
<laughs> it's like, no. And like, and I get all like, whatever, like that can't possibly be. And then I have to check myself and be like, you know what? It probably could be. And like, rather than just knee jerk respond in a way that indicates that I feel like I already know everything, which is what our education system like subtly instills in people. Like, you know, everything, if you memorize this shit, mm. <laughs> <It's Yeah>. like, <laughs> then instead I'm like, you know, what? I actually know pretty much nothing. And the only people who I respect or feel like know anything are the people who constantly talk about how much they don't know. Um, those are the people I look to, to know shit. Everybody else doesn't know anything. And I especially don't know anything. And so what right do I have to respond? Like, in this like like prickly like resistant way to new information (laughs) yeah i mean it's uh i i agree it's um i mean what's that what's like the old phrase like the longer like the longer time you spend on earth the more you realize you don't know Mm -hmm. or or you know however it goes yeah something like that yeah, the it was something like that. Ironically enough, know. none of us know what it actually is. Exactly, because we way, don't know anything. It should be. <laughs> we, we don't, don't know. even know the saying about the things we don't know. Like, can <laughs> we please have some collective humility as a species <laughs> and like look at the cats? Like, just spend more time sprawling in the sun and not being assholes to each other. <laughs> I will say, I think. Cats think they know everything, though. I mean, I mean, maybe that—that's the one shortcoming they have. I, I'm pretty sure if my cat could actually talk, she would say, "Yeah, I know everything. I have it figured out. You got to catch up to me." The but, but in many ways, she's going to be right. <laughs> right. I was going to say the only indication we have that they don't actually know any everything is that they get stuck places sometimes. <laughs> Right. But then they try to make it look like that's not what's happening. Right. Like, like I'll be like, I'll be like, do you, do you need help getting out of that tote bag? Like, no, this is what I'm trying to do. This is an exercise. Don't touch. Don't touch the bag. Don't take it off me. Oh, I'm going to meow. I'm pretending I don't want you to do this, even though I'd just be stuck in this all day if you didn't do something. Uh, yeah. Or in the case of one of my cats, like, oh, you're going to eat the plant again. Yeah. Yeah. My wife will occasionally bring home. She actually brought something home the other day. And I'm like, are you that you don't want that to be around long? I take it. She's like, I don't think Lucy. I'm like, yeah, she will. Yeah. I've known her a while. She's going to that plants not going to last long. Going to have a short (laughs) life, that plant. And I actually think the plant might not be with us any longer. Actually, I'm looking at it right now. It's hanging in there. It's hanging in there, but it has been, um, it has been attacked a few times and, uh, you know, I think his days are numbered. One, one time, um, there is one thing I, I got, um, I got one of those, um, copper flowers. Have you ever seen like people make those? I got one for my wife. This was, uh, before we were married, it was back when we were still dating. There was this, this person that used to sell them, uh, right near this comedy club that I used to perform at in LA a lot. And I, you know, I just saw him like selling them on the street and I bought one and I just gave it to her. And I'm like, hey, here's one. Lucy can't destroy this one. We got this (laughs) forever. (laughs) Yay. So you have to strategize with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, I would really love to hear more about your work on digital rights. And also the, um, you know, kind of related to that is the broadband, municipal broadband access. Because, you know, someone who's a librarian, I definitely have a lot of... um, I appreciate the work that you're doing advocating for those issues because 
they're not necessarily like sexy issues to people and people don't really sure. understand why we should care about it, but we really should <laughs> and more people should be paying attention. Yeah. So municipal broadband is basically just taking the internet out of the hands of the big cable companies and putting it into the hands of cities and municipalities. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people don't realize is that's actually happening in the United States already. There's places, I mean, you live in Colorado there at Longmont, Colorado has it, Fort Collins has it. And, uh, I think there's another place too, but, um, and Oregon, a lot of places in Oregon have it as well. Like Sandy, Oregon has it. Portland, Oregon is working on it. Um, you know, and then where I live in California, like Beverly Hills is about to get it, Santa Monica. So it's, um, you know, it's something that already exists, but it's still not really a widely known thing because people are just used to living in Comcastville or AT&T country. And by the way, these big cable companies formed an organized duopoly so that they could just price gouge customers all over the world. And we pay more and get worse internet than a lot of other places. And it's not because internet infrastructure is super crazy costly to build or that it's super costly to maintain. It's that we have these cable companies that just kind of care about making as much money as possible and don't really care about your service. But if you have your city running the internet, you know, the way I like to explain it to people, whether you are the poorest resident, the richest resident, the mayor, or anything in between, we all want our porn to load fast. So <laughs> people care. And, um, you know, and there's studies that indicate this. There's studies that have pointed out that every municipality that has a municipal broadband project, they offer residents internet at a better price and it's better quality too. So it's cheaper and it's better quality internet. Chattanooga, Tennessee has municipal broadband all across the city because they took advantage of their electric grid early on. They were kind of ahead of the curve in that regard. Yeah. And they have some of the best internet in the world. And they pay on average, I think it's about 65 bucks a month. It's less than I pay for cable um, or for internet rather, because I don't have cable TV. I just do internet. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so it's a pretty important issue, but it, it's one that not a lot of people are just aware of. Um, and it's one of those things that you can kind of act on, on your own. I mean, you can show up at a city council meeting, which I've done in two places now. I did it once in Pasadena when I lived there. And recently I moved to an area of town called San Pedro, which is, um, it's part of LA proper, but it also has a lot of, um, it also has a lot of like civic engagement as a neighborhood because, San Pedro used to be its own city, and then it officially joined L.A. Uh, I mean, it's been a long time now, but 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 at one point in time, San Pedro used to be its own city. It's not anymore, but it still has its own city hall. So it still has like a bunch of different neighborhood councils and stuff like that. Um, so I kind of thought, well, that might be a unique opportunity to get some stuff going at the neighborhood level in San Pedro, and then the rest of L.A. will kind of notice it. So you know, I presented at a San Pedro neighborhood council to try to get municipal broadband going um, in that area as, as well. Um, so that's kind of how it starts. And, and I've kind of used my show to talk about those issues, to, to do stories around those issues. There's a lot of organizations that, that um, do cover these issues a lot and pursue municipal broadband projects all over the country. So yeah, I've just tried to report on that stuff and talk about it in my show, tie it to other things. 
and just, um, you know, and then people, like I mentioned earlier, like people will email me and they'll be like, Oh, I'm going to my, I'm going to go to my city hall meeting and, and bring up musical broadband. Do you have any, you know, can you send me the transcript of what you said at yours, which I, which I do, I like have my transcript set aside. I like just email it to anyone who asks. And, um, you know, people will be like, Oh, I had a meeting with my mayor and I showed him your video and, and stuff like that. So I would love to be able to formalize a movement around it a little more. It's just, uh, you know, a matter of time and resources, but you know, it, it's part of get your news on with Ron. It, it's, um, you know, not the only thing I cover by any means, but you know, I spend a particular amount of time talking about net neutrality, talking about municipal broadband and the way those two things are connected with municipal broadband, you would write net neutrality into your charter. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, it's important to me because I, I kind of think without a free and open internet, what do we got? I mean, how can we communicate? How can we organize without a free and open internet? It's incredibly important especially in these quarantine times and what's going on in these quarantine times. Well, Comcast just decided they're going to impose data caps on people during a pandemic when people need their internet for work and people need it for school. And Comcast has decided, well, enough time has passed that we're going to impose data caps on people and then charge them extra. And hopefully nobody really reports on this or notices, which, Hey, we're back to media consolidation because <laughs> guess who owns MSNBC? Comcast. Right. So guess who's not going to be talking about that on uh, uh, MSNBC? Oh, and guess who AT&T owns? CNN. Mm. Oh, and guess what Fox News is? It's Rupert Murdoch's wet dream. So there you <laughs> yeah. go. That's our media, folks. Right. It's like, is it, it's six companies, I think, right now, isn't it? Like mm -hmm. that own all, all of the... Uh, the media that we think of as mainstream, um, any any non-independent media is owned by those. What are what what are the big six? Um, Comcast, AT and T, help me out. Disney, I think it's one. Um, and then I, I think like I think it technically it's six, but it's I think a little less than that because like they're all merging all the mm -hmm. time. Like Time Warner and AT and T merged right. not too long yeah. ago. It's, it's very few, though. It's like when probably you look at like Saudi yeah. Arabia and us. Like we're very similar. Like it's just yeah. we like what you're saying. Like we're the corporate states of America, and like we we're all, you know, they're dealing with their you know government, and we're dealing with our corporations, which are our government because they all have their politicians. So, you know, it's it's not that different when we look at like the deeply uh, conservative state-run media like you have in Iran or Saudi Arabia or um, any of these other like places that we think of as extremely state-controlled, China, Russia. It's like, it might as well be state-controlled. Oh, totally. Well, and that and that's the funny thing too, is like state-run media is, is a very big, dirty term in the United right. States. And, and they want you to think of, you know, China and stuff like that. What they don't want you to think of is, you know what else is state-run media? The BBC, the okay. CBC, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I'm not saying any of those places are perfect. They're totally not. But are they infinitely better than our media structure? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say yes, they are. I would mm -hmm. say that the CBC, the BBC, Canada, the, the UK, they have better media structures than we do here in the United States. Um, and, you know, even a place like Norway. So... So yeah, it's kind of interesting how 
we're, we're supposed to just passively accept this corporate giveaway to media, but like state run media, it's oh so scary, even though actually it, it would, we'd be better off than what we have now. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, is and, and I should correct myself when I say like, we practically have state run. I just, I mean, essentially like they're the, considering the regime that's in power right now. And also, I mean, any neoliberal government, when you think about how uh, their interests and the corporate interests are so closely aligned, it's like, like corporate, corporate media has taken over the national narrative and become state media mm. in this like weird eating itself kind of way that I think most people don't even have time to think about because they're struggling to survive. Right. And that's all by design. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how they want it to go. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's digital rights issues, broadband access, and I mean, it's all connected. Net neutrality so important because it's pretty much our only like weapon that we have is mm -hmm. to try to get better ideas out there and to try to just not feel alone. I mean, I think that was... You can see why they're trying to push, um, you know, our access to these things down because it is almost like the only stick we can pick up and try mm -hmm. to jam the gears with. So. Yeah, they really don't want anything outside of their Overton window, which continues to get more and more narrow as as the years go by. I mean, in, in some ways, like, yeah, we've definitely made progress in some areas, but like in others you know, it's gotten worse and worse. It's gotten smaller and smaller. The idea of independent media and like what we think of it as, like most of us don't even understand how much of the media that we have access to is um, not independent media and how much of it, like we don't know how to tell the difference off the, often. And, uh, we don't recognize, like, we don't know how to, like, compare and contrast narratives. Uh, we're not taught that in school. I, you know, I, those of us who learn it usually learn it in college or just through life experience of being like, oh, this isn't what happened. I just read it, but it's not what happened. Anyway, we just don't, we don't learn how to, like, compare and contrast narratives and see how very similar, like, what we think of as the right wing and what we think of as the left wing media actually are and, mm -hmm. and how like completely as you're saying conservative or I don't even want to say like conservative because what does that mean it's more just like anti-life <laughs> <laughs> I don't see anything in the so-called conservative platform that celebrates life um, and prioritizes um, the better living of it so well I mean if dollar bills could start walking around and having personalities, then it would celebrate life. Yeah. But, oh but until then. <laughs> oh my God. What if, what if um, for the next election, we, uh, we just run a dollar bill with googly eyes. <laughs> no kidding. No like, kidding. Let's just do it. Like it'll be on a stick and we'll put a little face. Like, oh, we'll, like a little, we'll put the googly eyes on the president on the bill. Yeah. Well, and then give it a red, white, and blue hat. 
Yes. With yeah. stars. And then it'll just say like Patriot and people yeah. be like, yeah, that's, that's, that's our guy. Yeah. It'll just be like, it'll be, uh, you know, uh, we'll call it like the rich people party, the you can be rich people party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and You're just a temporarily embarrassed billionaire party. <laughs> temporarily embarrassed. Exactly. Or you're already a billionaire. Yeah. Every billionaire party and everyone will jump in and then, you know, and then of course we'll, uh, we'll secretly be, you know, benevolent. Yeah. <laughs> a benevolent corporate. We'll do the old switcheroo, <laughs> the old election switcheroo. Speaking of elections, um, I would love to hear about your work with Movement for People's Party, and also kind of maybe talking for, to some of our listeners about what that is, how they can get involved, why it matters, all of that. Yeah. So People's Party is you know an effort to kind of build a viable alternative to the Democrats and Republicans in the United States to build a a major new party. Um, And, you know, historically, that's kind of how it happened in the past where, you know, there were a lot of smaller parties that were frustrated with, um, you know, the Republican Democrat and the Whigs at the time. And then, you know, it eventually broke off and it became what we know as the Republican Party today. So, you know, there's some historic significance that points to we're at another time in our history where it's time for something like that to rise up. Um, so that's what People's Party is. And, and uh, peoplesparty.org is where you can learn more about that. Um, as far as the advisory council, that was announced recently. And I was a little surprised they asked me. My interest in electoralism is... Um, pretty much non-existent. I I have no interest in ever running for office. I have no interest in, I I mean, I'm more interested in, you know, like causes, you know, like, like the, like, like municipal broadband, for instance, the only campaigns, I mean, I, I, I canvass for Bernie, but, uh, you know, outside of Bernie, the only, um, you know, campaigns I've done or participated in were campaigns for net neutrality and campaigns to ban facial recognition. And uh, I like it that way. I mean, to me, that that's just an infinitely more fruitful way to uh, spend one's bandwidth if you um, fall into my side of the fence. You know what I mean? Like, like, like I'm not, and when I say that, what I mean is for some people, electoralism is their thing and that's fine. We need everybody, but that's not my thing. Um, and I'm not going to pretend it is, nor do I feel like it's the only thing out there. It's not, it's one of many tools in the toolkit of change. And it's an important one. I'm not going to say it's not, but I will say it's often an over amplified one. So as far as my involvement, um, you know, I was kind of surprised they asked me uh, based on everything I just said. And uh, but they were kind of looking for someone to sort of steer uh, their perspectives on digital rights. And um, that is something that I mean, and especially simultaneously, right before that was announced, which was very recently, There have been all the hearings on Section 230, um, which uh, for anyone not familiar with what's going on there, that's basically um, that's basically a piece of the Communications Decency Act that assures free speech online. 
And there's some issues going on with it right now because of, you know, what's going on with social media companies. And, you know, to really summarize it very quickly, basically, um, there's a problem, but gutting Section 230 is not the solution. The solution is new policy that meets where we're at technologically, not gutting a principle that assures free speech on the Internet. Um, so, but time and time again, I've seen people, especially elected officials, and this isn't just Republicans, it's Republicans and Democrats alike, where they'll just say these things, where it's just profoundly obvious, they just don't even understand what they're voting on. Like, like they don't understand what it is. They don't understand what it does. And it's just, I mean, you got to laugh about it so you don't go insane. But these are the people who make the laws around this stuff and they don't even understand what it is or what it does. And I'm not a tech expert. I'm not a lawyer. I am none of those things. You know what I am able to do, though? I'm able to look up a piece of policy and read the damn thing and read perspectives from people who also study this stuff and are activists in this realm and then make an informed perspective. Uh, it's not rocket science. It really isn't. You don't need to be a genius. You really don't. You don't even need to be smart, I don't think. Um, so, you know, it, it's just when I see that happen time and time again, I just kind of thought about it. I'm like, look, I don't feel like I'm an expert to advise anyone on anything, but I, uh, I do have a qualification of giving a shit about this stuff a and i also know the right people to ask questions and i know this because those are the people i ask questions of all the time um you know when i develop get your news on with ron um i don't just make shit up i read stuff and i ask people who exist in these spaces and are doing good work that is worth amplifying uh i don't ask my elected representative. I don't ask uh, somebody who just wrote an article about it and it's obvious they just repeated talking points. Um, I ask people who exist in the digital rights realm. I ask organizations like Fight for the Future who I've had the privilege to collaborate with on some of their campaigns. I ask folks like Free Press. I ask folks like the Institute of Local Self-Reliance who are building uh, municipal broadband projects everywhere. I ask folks like the Center for Media Justice, like the Hispanic Media Coalition, uh, like Demand Progress. Um, those are the types of folks that I like to talk to. Those are the types of folks I like to collaborate with. Those are the types of folks who I showed up to in Washington, D.C. to try to pressure Mitch McConnell to give the Save the Internet bill a vote. Um, they didn't do that. Mitch McConnell didn't even come out. He was still in his shell. But we still had a fun time in this Capitol. Um, so... So, yeah, I mean, that's that's my role. And um, I don't know what everyone else's role is. I know there's some, um, you know, really cool and awesome, interesting people from all realms. I mean, Medea Benjamin's part of it. Um, you know, her books are amazing and she is a peace activist with Code Pink. Um, Cornell West is on the advisory council. Um, uh, Susan Sarandon, Rose McGowan. Um, Ryan Knight, Jimmy Dore. So, so it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting group of people. And, um, I look forward to seeing where it all goes. Awesome. Yeah. So do we. <laughs> yeah. 
with crossed fingers. Yeah, me too. Clenched I mean, yeah. sphincters. <laughs> crossed fingers and clenched <laughs> Now that's, that's got to be your next album. That's, that's your next <laughs> album has got to be crossed fingers and clenched sphincters. And, and to really make it high concept, all of your songs need to be like really, really political and in people's faces. Well, that's the album that I was actually going to be recording with um, Eleanor Goldfield back in March, right? Like five days after everything got locked down was when that show was scheduled. We were going to, I was going to do a live album with all only political, politically charged songs. I mean, because I've been trying to think of all songs as being political in some way. Sure. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but more like, you know, politically charged songs, Um that you know with crowd energy because like there's nothing that feels better than you know being in solidarity with a room full of people singing along you know fuck shit up yes happy (laughs) um but so that got canceled and and i've i've you know i've got a little blue balls from that album not not going going all the way (laughs) all the way through there but uh is that is that a thing yeah no that's definitely a thing that happens in the artistic world i don't have actual balls but i have musical blue balls for that album so I, we're gonna have you know, to make it somehow. i have comedic blue balls and i yeah. i mean i i think that's a great way to put it um and yeah i hope you do make eleanor's awesome so yeah i i really hope you all make that that sounds i can't wait to yeah. hear it well she was gonna do a um uh an opening set and I was then I was gonna do my songs and have her join in on a couple of them, but maybe someday we'll still be able to do that. And either way, like I know, like we find ways to make things work, don't we? <laughs> well, it's really cool, like the way people have been able to record a lot of stuff remotely. You know, I, mm-hmm. I mean, just like dropboxing song ideas to each other and, and stuff like that. Like I know you know, like a lot of bands that I like and listen to, they're like, well, we're, uh, we're going to tour again someday. But in the meantime, here's a bunch of new music. And it's like, oh, awesome. So yeah. it is pretty cool. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a little envious there because I can't, you really can't make a stand up album without an audience. I mean, some comics have figured it out, but it's really, I mean, it's really hard to do. I mean, I, I have, I did this one thing and, and it was, amazing but I did a live stream from a club so I was physically on stage at a comedy club and there was a very very small studio audience because this was when I don't know if this is still the case with the law it might have gotten stricter between now and then this was back in October but at the time you were allowed to have I think it was, I mean, it was like maybe 5% capacity or something like that. It was very, very strict, but you were allowed to have a small studio audience. So we did have like, it was about eight people in a room that seats over 200. You know, the doors were open, everybody was masked up, there was sanitizer everywhere. And, and, you know, obviously no one had symptoms or anything like that. It was very, very closely monitored, but you were allowed to do that. So I did that. And it's so funny because it was, I mean, it was one of the highlights of my year. And, and I, I talked about it. I was just like, guys, this is really telling of, of the contemporary moment we're in because I have been looking forward to this for months. And I have felt this entire day like I, I am going to headline at the Madison Square Garden. 
And where am I going in reality? I'm going to perform in an empty room. This used to be a nightmare. <laughs> now it's a dream. And I knew the room was going to be empty. It's not like, oh shit, it's a bum night. I guess there was a Dodgers game or something. No, I knew the room was going to be empty. And I'm still beyond excited to be here because it's something. And I'm not in my living room with a Zoom background. Um but anyway, I did put out like one clip from it. And of course, with the disclaimer that it's like, this is stand up without an audience. But like, <laughs> but so, yeah, I mean, you can kind of recreate it to an extent. But I was supposed to do an album and a special in 2020. And it just, you know, it just yeah. we were actually going to film it in Portland, ironically enough. Oh. Um, yeah, it just totally did not happen. Well, I feel like after you know, once, once the vaccinations are, you know, more widespread and we're sort of tiptoeing back into like some form of social interaction with each other, I think we're all going to like explode with creative happiness. And there's just going to be like a golden age of everyone, like blowing their collective creative load, um, all over everywhere. And I'm, I'm so excited for that. And also in the meantime to like, to keep using that energy to create and, you know, to keep using it to like, keep having ideas and making whatever we can make. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, and I think that's been a big thing for me too. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, it's the case for every creative, you know, you can still write a song, you can still write a poem, you can still write a joke, you can still, um, you know, write a script or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I mean, for a couple months, and I'm sure, you know, y'all went through this too. I, I was, I was just so dwelling on seeing dates get canceled slowly, but surely. And, and just feeling like I had no identity and just, just telling, telling my wife, I, I can't do this. How can I possibly do this? And, and then, but then eventually you just kind of take a step back and breathe and you're like, okay, I can either dwell on all the things I can't do right now, or I can really focus on the things I can and really just do those to the best of my ability. Now, as I say this, I have not practiced my Italian the way I told myself I was going to <laughs> back in April, but it is a new year. Right. 2021. You know what though? I think it's really interesting. Like I haven't done all the things that I thought I was going to do either, but I've done different things. Mm -hmm. And that has been exciting to like sort of watch it, um, expectations and intentions turn into like differently uh beautiful realities in many ways and you know in some cases not as beautiful or whatever but it's just been really interesting to see what like the game of telephone that happens between our we set our, our initial intention and then like what actually happens yeah yeah, yeah I mean there were a couple things I really wanted to do that I still haven't gotten to but then yeah other things have kind of appeared and I mean, the one thing like I, I've gotten away from in recent years, mostly because of time constraints is like long walks. And so being able to get back to that was kind of cool, especially since like I, you know, I, I live in I live in San Pedro now, which is a part of L.A. that's, um, you know, it's on the water and it's um, and it's kind of a little more just sort of industrial and, and on its own, like it like it's a part of L.A., 
it's a part of LA that is technically part of LA, but nobody told a bunch of people there that it's part of LA. Like, like a lot of, like it's, it's the only part of the city, at least that I know of where if you're not from here, you're actually in the minority. Um, I never knew there was anywhere in LA like that, but here, um, not that I've met a lot of people because, you know, things are pretty close, but like, I'll go to my farmer's market and stuff like that. So I have a little bit of, you know, interaction. And what I found is like most people here are from here. And, um, you know, I'm kind of like, like if you, if you're new, it's like, oh, you're new in town. So, so it's got this like small town vibe, even though it's still, part of Los Angeles and you're still on the highway in no time and you're either going into the city or going out to Long Beach. Um, so I, I've kind of celebrated just being able to wander around this neighborhood aimlessly, just trying to absorb things. Um, and you don't get to absorb it as much, but you still, even though it's just an empty building, you can still kind of, um, you know, feel the spirit a little bit and be like, okay, I know this is going to be really cool once uh, the world gets to wake up again. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, this is a very difficult time for all of us. But, you know, my editor, Joe, is about to be a senior in college. And, you know, and, and, and then like I know other like like just family members and friends and stuff like that, where they just graduated high school or they're just getting ready to finish college. And I'm like, oh, man, you guys really got shipped this yeah i'm sorry you you know screwed. when this is all over y'all have to make up for lost time like like when this is all over like 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 when this is all over i if i'm ever at a bar and i see someone who's like i am not stepping foot out of here until last call because i am 26 years old and i spent my college time during the pandemic i'd be like i get it i mm-hmm. I, I feel like i feel like those people they're they're gonna party hard until they're like 70 like, like oh, yeah. they're not because they're gonna be like we are making up for every yeah. second that we missed and we're gonna multiply it and yeah. uh I look forward to that. I really do. I'm going to try to keep up with them. I probably won't. Zoomers, are you listening? I'm going to I'm going to try to keep up with you. Make I'll us tell, proud. I'll tell you what the warp tour used to be like when I was a kid. <laughs> they really are. I think they're just not ever going to stop too because they're all going to know and I think the rest of us too now once it once it is possible to like have social lives and be out in public again, we are going to treasure and value that time like we never have before and we are going to do we're going to be like our grandparents in the depression where they hoard things we will hoard parties (laughs) yes like we are going to have parties every night because you never know when they might be canceled (laughs) no no cares i think so too and i look forward to that because i i mean and especially too like getting it back to performance like i you know sometimes it's like you have to do a stand-up set and it's at like a you know, it's at like a shitty bar or it's at like, you just want to work on some new material and you're at this open mic where no one really gives a fuck and people are just kind of hanging out with their friends and it's real clickish and you're just like, ah. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm never going to take anything for granted again. I am never going to take any room with a microphone in it for granted (laughs) ever again when this is all over. I'm never going to take any of my friends for granted. I mean, I like to think I never was anyway, but you know what I mean? Like, like I'm never going to take any of that for granted. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even from like an audience perspective, the little town I live in in Colorado is known for like having a lot of bluegrass music and bluegrass musicians to the point where you kind of get a little sick of bluegrass living here. And the number of times this year I've been like, I feel so bad I ever complained about seeing so much bluegrass. I would kill to hear some dude on a banjo ripping Mountain Girls Can Love right now. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, it definitely makes you appreciate everything for sure. Also, Party Hoarder would be a really good band name. Ooh. Party Hoarder would be an amazing band name. Maybe Party Hoarder will um, will make the 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 next political album. Uh, what did I say? What is it? Crossed fingers and and clenched sphincters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Uh, the bad jokes that are going to come out of the pandemic, eh? Am I? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel like we've 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 gotten a chance to soak up a lot of your time is there anything else that you want to talk about before yeah. we let you before we cut you loose to join <laughs> join the the room that you're in <laughs> well uh yeah no thanks for thanks for having me I really enjoy your all's podcast and uh I was real excited when I found it and uh thanks for turning me on to some cool new music I didn't know about okay. um I gotta go I gotta go like visit some of your past show notes because I've heard songs that I've really liked but, you know, I didn't remember I'd be like, you know, on a walk or something. So I didn't get to like write down the information. So I was like, yeah, eventually I got to go through their website and like write some stuff down so I can like find the artists and follow them and stuff. But uh, but yeah, if anyone wants to follow me, I am Ron Placone on all the socials. I'm just at Ron Placone on Twitter, Ron Placone on Instagram, Ron Placone Comedy on Facebook. Uh, romplacone.com is my website someday there will be tour dates on it someday <laughs> um, and then in the meantime my show Get Your News On With Ron you can find that uh, wherever you get podcasts iTunes all that stuff it's just Get Your News On With Ron and of course I'm Ron Placone on YouTube where I stream my show that will be back officially on January 11th at 2pm Eastern 11am Pacific awesome Perfect. Yeah. Ron and thanks so much for reaching out so we're so glad that you like the pod and it's been a real labor of love. So it's very, um, yeah, it's very encouraging to know people are listening. So. Well, thanks, thanks for letting me be part of it. Yeah. 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 Well, you better not tweet. You better not strike. You better not protest. I'm telling you why. Everything of this week has just been like making me more scattered than usual. Anyway, (laughs) it's not just like the stress of like the, you know, fascist administration, but now it's like the denial of the neoliberals to contend with which leads to fascism (laughs) of the happy people. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, this is a lot. This is actually more than, um, it was for the last four years because now it's not just like the right wingers who are all aggro up in my face, but it's, you know, the people who think of themselves as opposed to the right wingers when they're not actually in practice that opposed. Right. (laughs) I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how long this honeymoon period will actually last. Cause I mean, they've already walked back checks 
Not really sure what's happening with the kids in cages, so if I misspeak on any of these things, you know, feel free to correct me. But even some of these executive orders, which are rolling back Trump things, I mean, yeah, like a lot of it's good. Like, I'll give them credit for that. But even like that $15 minimum wage for federal workers, there's like a bunch of exceptions. And it's again, it's very Democrat way of doing legislation where it's like, it sounds nice on the title and the brand. But when you get into it, it's like so many exceptions written by committee written to like, please various groups of donors, that you're not really getting action of substance. And considering we're in a pandemic facing a crisis as great as the Great Depression in the middle of a climate crisis, you would think they'd be a little more bold and visionary. And for the last few months, all we've heard is everyone screaming about how Joe Biden's going to be the next FDR. So, um, yeah, we have the right to criticize that (laughs) if he's not. And then he's given us no indication that that's what he's going to be, too. That's the whole thing is this like if Joe Biden this whole time had been saying, like, I'm going to make everything better. I'm going to do all I'm going to do. Th- I'm going to make sure that everybody has enough money. I'm going to make sure everyone has health care. I'm going to make sure that the environment is not going to, you know, explode all over us anytime real soon, if I possibly can. He's actually not been saying any of those things. And that so, is very true. Like, <laughs> while all these people who are so hopeful, they're like, Give us our time to celebrate. And I'm like, what are you celebrating? You're you're celebrating the fact that the person who has been saying all along that he's not going to do anywhere near enough to address the actual problems here. Nothing will fundamentally change. (laughs) Literally. He literally said that. He literally said that. And and they're like, but it's going to be better. And it's like... Okay, but let's look at this practically. Like people's partisanship is blinding them to practicality, and the the fact that if this administration was going to do anything other than kind of sort of cancel out the last administration, kind of sort of, not even really, (laughs) if they were going to do anything anything remotely, um, you know, revolutionary to actually change things for people then they could and they would and it would take the form of, you know, everybody starts getting paid um, every month right now for staying home for the pandemic. Um, Everybody gets to, uh, you know, like everybody gets their personal health care costs reimbursed. Like that kind of thing could happen. You know, that doesn't need Congress to happen because as we've seen, you know, the past administration did literally anything it wanted to by way of executive order. So when when you know the you know the old quote unquote wise liberals want to come at me like, well that's just not the way it works. You just can't take care of everything through executive order. And it's like, where have you been? Right. <laughs> yes you can. And you and all you have to do is want to. And so what we're seeing right now is that they don't want to um, actually address the fact that the reason why we're in this position is because we don't have universal health care and we don't have um, tax-funded education that would allow people to understand how to listen to scientists and doctors and not just, like, retreat all the way up their own ass, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's always, I mean... It's funny how the Democrats always fall back on process as an excuse, as well as their supporters, at least the more privileged supporters that think that process is a thing that matters, you know, like, um, 
And it's funny how the Republicans never do. And somehow people don't seem to put the two and two together. Like they don't finish the equation as to why that is, you know, or why that likely is. I shouldn't say anything like it's a for sure fact, but it's I can't help but notice that all of a sudden, like, it's all about processes and power sharing when the Democrats are in power. It's like, is it really or is it just that you don't want to do a damn thing and you want to be able to blame the Republicans? Because I kind of think that it's the latter. Again, please prove me wrong. Like, I would love to be proven wrong about all this, but I'm not holding out hope for it. Um, No. Nor should you. And that's why, like... (laughs) Like, all these people who are like, just give them a chance. Just be hopeful. And it's like, okay, so... Why do I, why do I, I owe you my was hope? was, like, walking down the street, and I saw someone coming toward me that literally told me the next time they saw me, they were going to punch me in the face. Would I keep walking toward them and hope that they weren't going to punch me in the face? Or would I go a totally different direction and avoid that potentiality and not sit there and hope maybe this person isn't going to punch me in the face? And that's what I feel like we're being asked to do with this administration as like, okay, we got rid of the fascist, kind of. We didn't really. He's still there. All of his cronies and all of the people who were holding him up in Congress the whole time are still there, um, and, or most of them anyway. And he's not going to be locked up at all. You know, right. I'm like the people that be back in four years to run, you know, it's like or someone else to carry on his vision will run. Exactly. Exactly. Like there are like people who are celebrating because they feel we have emerged victorious over the looming threat of fascism are not paying attention to how fascism works. No. And they're not paying attention to the fact that the Democrats are really just like a slightly more palatable version of the Republicans. Liberals and conservatives are a whole lot more alike than liberals and leftists. And Mm -hmm. um, that is something that's becoming very clear as many of us are sitting here going, all right, now it's time to, you know, create a better system. And a whole lot of people are like, but shouldn't we just go back to the system the way it was before that led to us getting these crazy fascists? Shouldn't we just do that? (laughs) No, no, we shouldn't. (laughs) I understand making relative value judgments, but that's why I really appreciate the work Ron does is, you know, he's advocating for something better and like he's, you know, bringing the media into question with his work on Get Your News On with Ron. It's like doing it in a way that's really funny and engaging and building a community. And I think sometimes people just need to be shown that actually you can ask for something better, whether it's municipal broadband or universal health care. Like these are not Mm -hmm. like actually earth shattering ideas. We've just been told they are. And here I'm going to lay out the reasons for you why. And I'm going to be really funny and hang out with my cat in the meantime. Well, and honestly, I feel like sense of humor is like the biggest tell for me with like how real someone is. Exactly. If someone can have a sense of humor about what they're talking about, then they're probably not full of shit. You know, like a real like when you think about what passes for, you know, comedy in the mainstream whitewashed you know sanitized world a lot of it is like just taking cheap shots and I think like Saturday Night Live is great at that super great at it um and like making the making the jokes that people want 
you to make because why don't, of course we want to make fun of, of the, the right, you know, of course we want to make fun of the fascists, but it's like when we're able to start making fun of the people who are claiming to be on our side and very clearly not, and we're able to, you know, find a way to laugh in this like incredible tragedy of a situation that we're in. That's when, like, I can start taking people a little more seriously <laughs> when they can, <laughs> when when they're laughing because the only other option is to cry. <laughs> yeah, and I also think humor, people see it as a sign of cynicism or they see it as a sign of not caring, but I think it's quite the opposite. I think to find a certain amount of humor, even black humor in these situations is, like, it's almost like a coping mechanism in a way. It shows that you care so much that this is how you have to address these issues. And I think it also can feel very personally empowering. You know, it's better to like, even if your heart is broken, to be able to laugh, um, you know, at a political situation, I think kind of gives you a little more fuel for your fire to keep going. So mm-hmm. mad shout out to Ron and to all the other lefties doing that kind of work. Um, yeah, y'all rock. Yeah. So. Really? Comedy is is clutch. Like I, I I mean that's why I I didn't I don't I didn't I wouldn't say that I set out to write comedy songs when I started writing songs, but the songs that I wrote like veered in that direction because I was writing the things that I've had to laugh at um for most of my life to avoid being completely, you know, overwhelmed by them. It's like it's a vent. And I feel like when when people aren't able to find comedy in this tragedy, they don't have the ability to vent uh, or to like let out any of like the sort of noxious reality gas that's building up in all of us. (laughs) Totally. And that resonates for me too, because, and I'm still kind of trying to find my creative voice with um, some of my projects, but Um, you know, like what I've been through with like addiction and a lot of the shit I've been through, like finding a sense of humor about that. Once you're past that immediate, like, okay, I guess I am going to let myself live (laughs) moment. Like you are, um, yeah, yeah, it kind of like helps you completely know what you mean. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of helps you have a little bit of a, I don't know if softer is the right word, but you're kind of like, you're able to get some space around your own shit. And it almost gives you more fuel to go in and actually deal with your shit if you have a sense of humor about it. I mean, it's another problem with online discourse is everyone seems like they have literally no sense of humor about themselves. And it's all about them having to be proven right, even to the point that like they can't stand that someone isn't sharing their hopeful feelings about the new presidential administration. It's like, where the fuck do you get off thinking you're that important? I'm sorry, you're not. Like. Have some sense of humor about yourself. Um, speaking of sense of humor, um, the Bernie memes. Yeah, the Bernie memes, which I feel like, you know, we're as as we're, you know, as we're moving into, you know, the new week in which Bernie memes have now, according to, you know, a whole lot of people jumped the shark, whatever. I still feel like, yeah, we should definitely um give credit where it's due because I needed a lot of laughing over this past week and holy shit I did not think that pictures of Bernie Sanders in a chair in mittens could make me laugh so much so consistently but wow 
I loved it because it was like, and I, I know this isn't a super creative or insightful thing to say, and I think a bunch of people have said this, but like, it's like our own guerrilla inauguration that we did. Like our collective consciousness was like, nah, this was the guy that we really wanted who would have been a, you know, at least seemed like he would have been up for addressing all the crises with an actual human core that seems to care about yeah. the suffering of everyday people. So I thought, you know, I kind of enjoyed it on that level. Um, well, and because it's like he had a sense of he has a sense of humor about it and immediately took that instead of just being like, oh, no, but he was like, cool, like, let's make it a sweatshirt and let's sell it to chair for charity. Like that is like the kind of thing a person does when they have a sense of humor about themselves yeah. and about a situation. And it's like nobody who's currently in power has that. I haven't seen anybody have the ability to actually laugh at themselves because they're too busy trying to hide the dark shit that they're up to. Right. Well, Bernie's <laughs> just a, like, a mensch all around. I don't know if I said that right. A mensch. <laughs> a mensch. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've got, and don't get me wrong, like, I, I still have my criticisms of Bernie. Oh, yeah, I me too. I'm, like, not, I'm not a you know, Kool-Aid drinker around totally. anyone, but yeah. Yeah, neither of us are, and, you know, I hope anybody listening to this is well aware that neither of us are like devotees of um, the burn. Um, but like when it comes to looking at shit, like through reality glasses, you know, you know, it's, it's just that he is um, being the most forthright and the most clear, like, it's not about, it's not about a personality. And that's why I like, I feel like people are so, people so much love grabbing onto his personality because he's like, no, don't give a shit about me. And that like makes it all the more appealing. Like, no, but we love that about you. Eh, you're not putting people in tr prison. You want to give us all health care. And yeah, you're an old white guy, but like, you're not full of yourself. Holy shit. So refreshing. Well, yeah, I think as someone who's like, I got hip to Bernie in like 2000 when I went to school in Vermont, like, I don't know. He just has this, like, ethical consistency about him, too, that I think people find really refreshing and this, like, kind of humility that it's hard to not feel affection for him. Even if, like, I, I will admit I have, like, a soft spot for Bernie, even if I haven't, you know, like, drunk the total Kool-Aid and I never thought he was going to be our savior, nor did I think we should give up yeah. when he... It didn't work out again, sadly, tragically, by design. Um, but, yeah, I feel like the... The whole, like, identity politics shit that gets thrown on him is just so, so out of step with the day-to-day -day reality of, like, what most people are living in this country. It's like, why do you think Bernie is popular? Is it because people want to take the thunder away from Kamala Harris in this historic yeah. moment? Or is it because people need health care? It's like that kind of fake right. feminist readings that, again, have no sense of humor about the Bernie memes. And I call them fake feminists because they're not, they don't care about poor women. They only right. care about a very small subset of women. So right. if you're actually a feminist and you care about the liberation of all women, you have to care about poor women too. And you are obligated to figure out why they are interested in certain political projects. And if you're not interested in mm -hmm. doing that work, you're not a fucking feminist. I'm sorry. Stop calling yourself yeah. a feminist and stop putting these fake ass readings of memes that people made to cheer themselves up during an incredibly dark period of history out on the Internet because nobody everyone's already sick of that garbage. Nobody needs more of that garbage. So, 
Right, exactly. It's not like an effort to overshadow anyone. It's just that, you know, the people who are saying the things that resonate will always rise above the people who aren't. Always. <laughs> Even if those people look the way we want our people who have power to look. Like, you know, I would have cheered my face off for someone like Barbara Lee or Maxine Waters or Nina... Um, Nina Turner. Nina Turner. Yeah. Thank you. Who's now running for Congress. <laughs> like, I, you know, I would, have, I would have been all the way on board with somebody who was actually walking and talking the way that we need someone to walk and talk in this country dealing with the reality that we've currently got. Not somebody who has been, you know, putting people in prison and exploiting their labor and um, climbing the ladder as aggressively as she possibly can. I mean, that was the critique I had of Hillary. That and the critique I have of any um of any, you know, essentially uh elite status uh politician. And uh and anybody who is, you know, just trying to be the head of the patriarchy. That's what I that's the read that I get. You know, I think it's just tokenizing when we allow a person, when we celebrate a person because of how they look and not because of who they are. And when I see all these feminists and all the all these women who are like, you're just ruining our, you know, our celebration day. And it's like, I'm not ruining anything. Like you are celebrating the wrong person. Like you should, we should not be celebrating this group of people that were, you know, forced on us, um, because, you know, it's just, we wouldn't, we wouldn't celebrate, and I've used this analogy, um, on social media, you know, like, I wouldn't celebrate a woman warden if I was in prison, and I'm not going to celebrate somebody, um, as vice president who has made it very clear that all she wants is to be at the top, um, that's not feminism. That's not queering anything. You know, if we want to step forward into the future, we need to be looking at like the complexities of people and not just their demographic. We need to move past identity politics when they're no longer serving us. And, you know, like it's great that we are able to appreciate everybody's wonderful vastness and fluidness of identity but when we when we take the ability to like claim identity and we start using it as like a cage to stick ourselves in um, and be like, we like this cage better because, you know, the person with the key is a woman. <laughs> and we're really missing the point of identity politics, I think. <laughs> well, it flattens the issues and it flattens the person. So it's kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, you've got to like, get comfortable living in a complex reality where there's multiple layers to every situation. You need to be willing to make value judgments on which layers of the situation are more important. And I'm sorry, the healthcare and economic justice is more important to me in the legitimate racial justice that comes out of, you know, like structural changes, not just putting a face at the top of the existing power right. structures. Like it's just not, it's not good enough. And I don't, and I don't think that that's unrealistic. I think that that's, what we need at this point to address the crises we're facing, you know? 
Exactly. Like what we're seeing, like what we literally watched, we watched Kamala Harris call Joe Biden a racist to his face on a debate stage and then take his hand and say, sure, I'll be your vice president because he said he need he was going to have a black woman as vice president. He literally said, I am going to do this. And then he picked this one who we all know does not really at all see eye to eye with him and does not trust him. And now we're being told to trust him because she's next to him and celebrate that she's there. And it's like, well, we just literally watched someone sell herself out. Right. Why would I celebrate that? Why would I celebrate that she literally just stepped into an abusive relationship and all of the little girls around the country are supposed to be happy and see her as a role model? Like, no, I want someone who sticks to their convictions. If you call a man a racist, don't tie yourself to his political career. Should be pretty easy, my opinion. Right. I mean, it's just all that kind of, again, just sort of the fake shadows on the wall of Maya, if you will, of our politics and... The whole kind of memory hole we put things in in this country, which, ugh, thank God for people like Ron trying to claw us back from the edge. Yeah, and and people like yeah, exactly. I'm really glad we were able to um, to have that conversation with Ron. I'm really glad that he's doing um, you know all the work he's doing, both with you know making the news <laughs> bearable and also, you know, the, um, digital rights work, which is super important because we're going to need to have a free and open internet. If we're going to be able to be critical, like of, of this administration, we're going to need to have the ability to like research everything they're doing and have access. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I just, <sighs> I know that there are a lot of people who are feeling as frustrated as we are right now out in the world. And so, yeah, that the presence of wonderful comics to to make the news easier um, is, uh, I think, what's getting me through <laughs> a little bit. I can only listen to the news with a sense of humor now. <laughs> Anyone who's shining that light is doing good work. What the Folk is co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Emily Yates. Our guest this episode has been Ron Placone. Featured music has been Love Me, I'm a Liberal, and Bezos is Surveilling Your Town, performed by Ron Placone. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll come back again soon. And in the meantime, we'll miss you. establishment
have to start a revolution all over your ass. You dropped into my life like our drones drop bombs into Yemen. You stuck around for a while like we stuck around Afghanistan. But you were always so attentive to me every day, just like the FBI and NSA. If only you had treated me right. If only you had had some oversight. Cause I miss you like American bombs miss their targets. And I need you like politicians need the press. But I hate you like I hate the establishment. So there's something that I must ask. Please don't make me have to start a revolution all over your ass.